This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is possibly the ugliest title I have ever had. and It's not even supposed to be a play on word. I literally was somewhat offended with my own title when I picked it. I, I had various titles, and I was skipping around trying to figure out how to say this. And when I came to this title, it says everything I want to say, but it makes me sort of mad. I don't know how you guys feel about it, too, but there's something in this that just violates the very essence of my love relationship with Christ. How dare I stick something on a, a message about Christ that would it all say something like that? I don't know if you've ever had the feeling that when... When you hear this, the concept that Jesus became sin for us, that you feel a little upset over that. It's like, don't call Jesus sin. He was without sin. Uh, that's the whole point. Don't call Jesus ugly. He's the most beautiful in all the universe. You're right. And that's what's so important about this title. You see, uglified is actually not a word. To uglify is. So this is my use of the verb, to uglify. And if something is being... Uglified. Well, let me see. If, some, if I am uglifying something, that means it's uglified. That's the end state of uglifying. Sorry. Uh, that's I'm only confusing some of you. Uglified. Something has been made ugly. Unpacking the beautiful picture of Christ in Isaiah 53. So we're going to go through Isaiah 53. Technically, as you heard uh, Mark Carnell reading, we have to start in the end part of Isaiah 52. I'm not exactly sure why they chose to divide Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 the way they did because there's a starting point to the flow of discussion on Jehovah's servant, on the Father's servant who will come and who will do the work that we all know as the work of the cross. And without debate, Isaiah 53 is so clearly an enunciation of the work of Jesus Christ on that cross 2,000 years ago in the town of Jerusalem, on that high hill of Calvary. It is very difficult for anyone to argue that because it is so crystalline in how it articulates itself. Some people have the notion that, oh, maybe those words were written after Jesus died. You ever heard people say things like that? Actually, the book of Isaiah, historically, was written 750 years before that day. That's a long time. And so as a result, something was written 750 years prior that was fulfilled in such great granular detail in one singular man. And we know that man as Jehovah's servant. He is known to the Jews as the Messiah. In the Greek, the translation of that would be the Christos, the Christ. The one who is anointed by God to do the work. So the reason I brought up Sandy is there's a key scripture in the book of Isaiah that is in Isaiah 61 that Jesus, before he launches into his ministry in his hometown, sort of 
uh, opens up that book before the, the people and, and reads from Isaiah 61. It says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. Well, what did he just read? Well, he read the book of Isaiah. That's, that's one thing uh, that is very interesting to note. And this is what Sandy was passing on to me. This was her meditation this morning in, in reading through the notes. And he says, this is fulfilled. You see, the book of Isaiah is about one thing. It's about the one who is to come. And Isaiah 61, Jesus reads that. And he says, today it's fulfilled. Well, that's talking about the one on whom the unction or the anointing will come, the Christos or the Messiah. He says, guys, I'm he. That's what he's saying, which is why they didn't quite know what to do with that. They were a little upset over that. Who are you? You grew up in this town. Who are you to actually dare say that you are the fulfillment of all righteousness? Well, so again, I'm getting back to what Sandy said. I'm, I can get off because I get excited about some of these topics. But she said, if he knew Isaiah 61, he knew Isaiah 53. And he would have known Isaiah 53 just as well as he would have known Isaiah 61, which meant, meant when he was in the garden, he would have fully known Isaiah 53, he would have known Isaiah 50, which is going to be read too. He would have known Psalm 22. He would have known where he was heading. And the verbiage is so extreme of what this Christ will face. What will happen to this Christ is so weighty. And he still walked forward. Why? For us. It's an amazing movement of grace when you begin to catch a hold of this. And you personalize the recognition that this one, this almighty, so beautiful, so perfect, came after us. And he was willing to walk through the worst to gain even one of us. Let alone to personalize it to us as an individual when someone says to you, no, you. He did this for you. I mean, how do you fathom that? And that's why there's a cloud. There's a there's like a thickness uh, to our brain. We can't quite see it. We can't quite get it. Every now and then we have these moments where we see it. And then we fade into the dullness again. I want to live in the sharpness of the reality of Isaiah 53. If it's at all possible, Lord Jesus, help us to live in the reality. So Isaiah 52, 14, right before Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 ends in, in verse 15. Okay, this is right before it. It says, his visage, whose visage? Well, this is Jehovah's servant, the one who's talked about in Isaiah 53. His visage, his face, his countenance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. In Isaiah 53, at the very beginning, it says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, when you grow up reading that line, you have to conclude one, or, one of uh, two things. And this is how we most, most likely will look at it. I guess he wasn't a very attractive guy. And yet you have to recognize the context of that statement is Jehovah's servant is going to be marred. There is something that he is and then he's going to become. And Isaiah 53 is referencing what he's becoming. That's the picture of the cross. And so I, I can't prove this in any way. I mean, there's, there's writings, early writings, but no one knows if they're true, talking about the actual handsomeness of Jesus. I chose not to reference them because 
they're probably written in the 1300s as some kind of meditative worship of Jesus. They're really powerful. I mean, they really are, but I, I can't base anything upon it. We don't know what he actually looked like. We can get hints uh, in different spots, and I'll, I'll give you some of the hints. But the point is, all majesty has come to this earth and indwelled in the body of a man. I don't know what it looked like, but I know what it became. And that's what I can focus on. But very likely, he was very handsome. But I know that he was marred to the point of unrecognizable. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is actually the words of the Christ written a thousand years before the cross. David is writing Psalm 22, and he says, I am a worm and no man. Who's talking? It's like Jesus actually talking a thousand years before he comes in and through Psalm 22. Psalm 22, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the words that Jesus speaks on the cross as he's hanging there. Where's that from? That's Psalm 22. As if before an entire nation, he cries out, read it. Look at it. I'm fulfilling it in front of you. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. They gape at me with their mouths. They look and stare at me. So let's ponder who is this Jesus. So Song of Solomon, being an incredible picture of a bridegroom bride, Jesus, the fulfillment of all righteousness, is the bridegroom. And we, the church, those that believe, become a Jerusalem. We become a bride. And so we see an incredible picture of one likened unto Jesus in the Song of Solomon. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I don't know that Leslie ever wrote something like that about me. But that's a pretty high statement of one who is altogether lovely. And if I were to ask you, who is this one who is the chiefest among 10,000? Who is this one who is altogether lovely? Do you know him? His name is Jesus. For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Don't tell me that's not beautiful. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. How could you not expect that to be beautiful? I and my Father are one. So, just as a baseline, I just want to say that though I would be unable to prove the handsomeness of Jesus when he was here in bodily form, I know he wasn't handsome on the cross. Okay, I can, I can show that. But to say that I know that this one is truly handsome, at least in his eternal state before he came, and in his state now, I know it. What he looked like down here, I can't speak on, other than to say it was marred, and he became ugly for us. 
Jesus, the great beauty. Fairer than the children of men, the chiefest among 10,000, the bridegroom, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, a bundle of myrrh, a cluster of henna blooms. Yea, thou art altogether lovely. Thou art my beloved and my friend. So here's a good summary of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, perfect beauty was marred for me. The vision of Isaiah, the miniature Bible. So some of you may have heard Dan teach on this in the past, but it's an extremely fascinating concept that the book of Isaiah, we we typically would look at it as the prophecies of Isaiah or the book of Isaiah. God himself calls it, if you want to say it this way, through the words of Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah. It's something that he saw. What did he see? If I were to ask you that after reading the book of Isaiah, if I were just, I'm going to go through a very cursory overview real quick. What did he see? What was the vision of? Jesus. What Isaiah saw was Jesus. And so, it's a miniature Bible. How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many chapters in Isaiah? 66. That's strange. How many in the Old Testament? 39. How many in the New? 27. This book is divided. In fact, many people will actually argue, it's sort of a weird argument, that there's two Isaiahs, and two different Isaiahs wrote it. Like, why do you think that? Well, because there's a distinct change of tone right at chapter 40. Right at chapter 40, everything shifts. The first 39 are about law and judgments that are coming upon the Jews, upon Judea, upon Jerusalem. This is like, hey guys, you've really blown it. Here's the law and you have failed. These are the repercussions. 39 chapters of that. Heavy stuff. The righteousness of God. And then chapter 40. So 66 books, 66 chapters, 39 books of the Old Testament dealing with law and judgment, 39 chapters in the first section of Isaiah dealing with law and judgment, 27 books of the New Testament dealing with comfort and salvation through the Christ. There is one who is going to come and he is going to bring comfort and salvation. When does that start? Chapter 40. 27 chapters in the second section of Isaiah dealing with the message of comfort and salvation through Christ. So 750 years before Jesus, this is written. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Powerful beginning to a book. So uh, I'm just going to touch on certain points because many of us are familiar with the terrain of Isaiah, but very few of us could just go through 66 chapters and outline them Uh, that way. And so we have some key moments. What is Isaiah seeing? It's called the vision of Isaiah. What does he see? Well, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Remember that one? I've taught on that. The Operation Woe Logo. Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And so we see this extraordinary king seated high on a throne. His glory literally is going to fill the entire place known as the temple. And so who are we seeing is what I could question. You could say, well, he's seeing God. Well, you'd be accurate. He is seeing God. But in the book of John, this is answered. Who did Isaiah see? So there are quotations even in the book of John that are talking about Isaiah. Two different ones. One is referencing Isaiah 6. The other one is referencing Isaiah 53. And it says this, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of 
Him. Who's he talking about? Jesus. John the Apostle is saying, Isaiah saw Jesus high and lifted up. He saw Jesus on the cross. 750 years before, Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus. So 40, which, if you even understand the terrain of mathematics in, in the, the, the scriptures, 40 is like a number of fulfillment, of completion. And so that's what you see even in the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so at 40, in, 40 chapters in, you see a turning point. There is a definite uh, shift. Now, many of you are going to recognize this because when we preach the gospel... Today, we're, we want to emphasize, in a, in a strange way, I'm not saying to de-emphasize chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. I'm just saying chapter 40 and on are the ones you're most likely going to hear quoted. Why? Because they are bringing resonance with the gospel. They match. Just as the gospel was being preached to Jerusalem and Judea, you're seeing it preached here to us in and through these words. This is a parallel. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people. After 39 books of law and judgment, a shift takes place. To the point, such a shift, mind you, that scholars have said there has to be two Isaiahs. Because this guy seems to be schizophrenic. There's no way he would write that and then shift suddenly to write something so different. Welcome to the two parts of the Bible. The old covenant to the new covenant. Same God. Is he schizophrenic? You're under judgment, a just condemnation, unless you can live perfectly righteous. However, those first 39 books still say, you can't do it. There is one who will come who will do it. And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. He still upholds the bar of justice. He upholds the reality that this world is under condemnation. But then something shifts. And he says, comfort. He begins to talk about that Messiah that is coming. And cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, if you know the New Testament story, you're going to recognize, wait a minute, that's the exact quotation of what's happening when John the Baptist is coming. This is exactly what is taking place. The very transition into what we understand as the new covenant is right here. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so at the end of Isaiah, this was always my favorite scripture all growing up. And so if you ask me what my favorite scripture is, you know how little kids get asked that and you have to figure out an answer to that. Mine was always right here. And if you ask me why I liked it so much, I don't know, my, my reasons might have been rather pedestrian. I thought it was cool because it had sort of an athletic uh, tone to it. I was really into athletics. I don't know. At the same time, there is a deep meaning for me in this, even all these years later. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we have a new tone that is being set. And what is going to take place from chapter 40 all the way to the end of Isaiah is going to have a different message to it, a different tone. It is one of redemption. 
It is one of hope. It is one of comfort. It is one of salvation. So, everything that I could bring up, we could say, could be debatable. But at the same time, there's a reasonable argument that could be made. That Isaiah 53 could be considered the heart of the Bible. It's just sort of right there in the heart position of the Bible, right? And what it represents is the essence of everything the entire Bible is all about. It's the cross. But it's, if you want to look at it this way, if you made this the heart, in other words, this is the life source of everything that is going to take place, and God is setting the stage for us to understand this. Here is the center. Here is the boom, 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 boom. The palpitation of life that will be given. At that very cross, what happens? A spear from a Roman soldier goes into that very heart and gives it access to come out. And that very life flows out of that very heart. What takes place in Isaiah 53, if you call it the heart, it's the storage, capa- storage cavity for that very life that wants to pump it, not just through the life of the body of Christ that lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, but those that will be called the body of Christ because by faith they have believed upon that very work. And as a result, that heart beats that very life into us, changing us, transforming us. There's something very profound about Isaiah 53. And so, I'm going to call it the heart of the Bible, the source of the living water. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So this is right before we're going to launch into Isaiah 53, and I would say it only makes sense that this would be included in Isaiah 53, because this is where the argument starts, if you are the case for the servant, the capital S servant uh, comes into play. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more like the sons of men, more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Marred more than any man. Mishkoth is the Hebrew word, which means disfigurement. Corruption of countenance, disintegration of beauty, destruction of handsomeness. He is, his handsomeness is utterly destroyed in and through what is about to take place. And this is a starting package. Let me introduce you to my servant. Here is what will happen to my servant. His beauty will be marred. Just, it's hard for us to even comprehend. Like, Just think back to when I first said the title to this message, Uglified. Whoa, hey, don't use such a term with our Savior. He's beautiful. He is. I am so moved by the beauty of Christ. It's sort of strange to say that. It's like, aren't you a man, Eric? I am. But there's something about the Christ that stirs me. It moves me to awe, wonder, and worship. And throughout my Christian life, that is only amplified. To the point where there's sometimes I don't even have the ability to speak or sing. It's like that even seems irreverent. But just to be still in light of the ravishing loveliness of who he is. His glory. His power. His fame. His goodness. His grace. I have nothing to add. Other than awe. I think that's one of the best words, the best understandings of awe. Is it's speechless. It's just the noise that comes out. Uh, when you're speechless, going, ah. 
That to me is what awe is. And that's what Jesus alone deserves. He is the only one that is truly awesome. I, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So who's talking? Well, remember what book we're in here. Now this is three chapters before Isaiah 53. And if Jesus knew Isaiah 61, he knew Isaiah 53. If he knew Isaiah 53, he knew Isaiah 50. And this is quite a statement because for many of us, now, none of us are attracted to spitting, uh, especially someone spitting in our face that is still in our culture very degrading. However, when you go to the East, where this story would have unfolded, spitting has a whole nother level of intensity to it. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So uh, here's a commentary on that. An instance of the utmost contempt and detestation. Throughout the East, it is highly offensive to spit in anyone's presence. And if this is such an indignity, how much more spitting in the face. Yet he did not hide his face from shame or spitting. The fact that God Almighty did this, again, is hard for us to comprehend, and there's a fog bank over it. But by the grace of God, I hope that we can somehow grasp the realities of what he has done for us. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. So there's a commentary on that. The Eastern people always held the beard in great veneration, and to pluck a man's beard is one of the grossest indignities that can be offered. De Arvo, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, gives a remarkable instance of an Arab who, having received a wound in his jaw, chose to hazard his life rather than suffer the surgeon to cut off his beard. He'd rather risk his life than have his beard shaved. The beard is held in high respect and greatly valued in the East. This is a different uh, commentary, different uh, scripture. The possessor considers it as his greatest ornament, often swears by it. So could you imagine? I swear by my beard. <laughs> and yet, to them, the weight of a beard was so severe and sacred that a man would gladly die to back up his word if he swore by his beard, because you're not shaving this beard. So, and in matters of great importance, he pledges it. I pledge my beard to you. <laughs> and nothing can be more secure than such a pledge. For its owner will redeem it at the hazard of his life. The beard was never cut off but in mourning or as a sign of slavery. It is customary to shave the Ottoman princes as a mark of their subjection to the reigning emperor. The beard is a mark of authority and liberty among the Mohammedans. The Persians who clip the beard and shave above the jaw are reputed heretics. They who serve in the seraglios have their beards shaven as a sign of servitude, nor do they suffer them to grow till the sultan has set them at liberty. Among the Arabians, it is more infamous for anyone to appear with his beard cut off than among us to be publicly whipped or branded. So if you were publicly whipped and shamed in front of a, an audience or branded to an Arab, it would be worse to have your beard cut off. And many would prefer death to such a punishment. So this is the culture that Jesus came into. Perfect beauty, perfect handsomeness, sullied by nothing. He is pure purity. He is love at the pinnacle of what love could be. He is only goodness. And yet he submits himself to be shamed 
in front of a mocking crowd, to have his face spat upon, to have his beard ripped out. Then they spat in his face, as it says in the New Testament. See, this is what's foreshadowed 750 years before. In Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, we see the foreshadow of how this Christ will be treated. They're going to strike his head. That's one thing you know because they're going to mar his face. They're going to mar his form to the point that it's unrecognizable. They're going to disfigure the Christ. Then they spat in his face and beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face. So the account that matches with Isaiah is actually fairly detailed in the New Testament. We see the spitting. We see the blows to the face. We see even a crown of thorns. If you had thorns stuck into your head, I can only imagine what that would be like and how that would affect and how that would create swelling. If you were hit with the palm of someone's hand over and over and over again and passed through a crowd, literally had your head beaten up. This has nothing to do with the scourging on his back. This has to do with his countenance. He literally is having his beard ripped out, spat upon. This is an unrecognizable man. Crown of thorns, the scourging, which also could have reached around and maybe even grabbed his neck, his face. This is a cat of nine tails that is meant to rip open the back, actually could have whipped around and even grabbed his face. The ripping out of the beard, the blows to the face, the spittle of contempt, that's spit equals the marred man. Isaiah 53, perfect beauty was marred for me. Who has believed our report? That's the very same quote that is given in the New Testament multiple times. Who has believed our report? Isaiah is saying something even before it happens. Report, so tidings, it could easily be translated, who has believed the good news? Who has believed what we have passed on to you? Don't you realize what has been done for you? Is anyone going to believe this? Because it's only through faith. It's only through that believing that you will find that life that he has given you. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to read that line again, and I want you to just recognize the thoughts that the mocking crowd have. Just as they did, just as Job's friends had. It's like, well, obviously God is just judging this man. It says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But people, listen, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. This was done not because he was deserving But we were deserving. He bore our grief. 
He carried our sorrow. He received those stripes that were rightfully ours. That marred face was the face of sin. And it's the face and the costume that we carried around. But he bore it so that we would no longer have to. He became ugly so that we could be made beautiful. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people what he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with sinners. One, two, three. It in vivid detail describes the death, the sufferings of the one we know as Jesus Christ. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 750 years before that very Christ died that very way, it is written down. Jesus at the Last Supper says, I tell you beforehand what will happen so that when it does happen, you will believe. He was saying that he would be betrayed and turned over to the hands of sinners and he would be crucified and rise again on the third day. I'm telling you guys before it happens so that when it does happen, you would believe. Isaiah starts this out and says, who has believed our report? I gave it to you 750 years ago, guys. Or for our case, 2,750 years ago. Who believes the report? Guys, it was told us in advance so that when it was fulfilled, we would believe. We would believe that all that is said here is true. He has borne our transgressions. He carried it upon his shoulders. By his stripes we are healed. He has done the work. We deserve judgment under law. But because of Jesus, there is now comfort, comfort to the people. There is hope because the iniquity of the land was removed in one singular day. That day. The day when Jesus Christ was marred and became ugly and became sin for us. The amazing testimony of seeing the Christ. What we have is this thing called prophecy in the Old Testament. And you could say, what's the value of it? There's a, an amazing value to prophecy. To actually see something before it takes place validates what takes place. It is a witness that is impossible to argue. So when it does take place, it gives credibility and authority to the event. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a laying in 
of prophecy of this one that we know as Jesus Christ. All throughout it. It's the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. It's the very first one. And then all throughout it describes where he'll be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll come forth, start his ministry in Galilee. He'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. This is, this is what it says in the Old Testament. We have vivid, intimate detail of his very death. In Psalm 22, written a thousand years before, it says, My hands and my feet are pierced. They divide my clothing amongst them. They cast lots for them. What? Whoa. That's a thousand years before it happens. It's fulfilled by Roman soldiers that have no clue about the prophecies. In other words, as Jesus said at the Last Supper, I tell you beforehand, what will happen so that when it does, you would believe. Actually, to get more specific, this is what he says. You would believe that I am. That I am. So the amazing testimony of seeing the Christ long before the Christ arrived. The mathematical rule of compound probability. Sorry, uh, I, I'm, I really don't want to uh, confuse anyone here. But there's something called probability. You, some of us would say the statistical odds of something happening. Okay? Now, it really makes no difference to me what the odds are. I just know that God always does it. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. But for the cynical mind, it oftentimes can be sort of interesting to see them try and compute what would be necessary for just Isaiah 52, the end, the last few verses of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, to come to pass 750 years later in one singular event by one singular man? Okay? What are the odds? Well, so according to the laws of compound uh, probability, you take, so say you take one of the 36 things. There's 36 things that are said to happen at that event, okay, at the end of 52 and through Isaiah chapter 53. So say the odds were one in two, okay, which is being very gracious, that it's a one in two chance that some man would do this, okay? Now that's very good odds, because uh, it, it's more like one in 10,000 would probably be a little more accurate. But then you take one in two and you match it with another one that might be one in two, and you get a one in four chance, because you just multiply the two odds together, okay? You have to know your fractional multiplication processes to do that, but it'd be one in four. For two of those things to be fulfilled, if you give it a one in two chance, or a 50-50 chance to happen. If you take all 36, it gets pretty big. You can look right down at the very end there. It says, then by the rule of compound probability for all 36 of these things to be true of one man in one event 750 years after they were written down by the prophet Isaiah would be one in 68,719,476,736. Now, I hope you recognize that as being very gracious. That's given a 50-50 chance to every single one of those things, which should be a lot higher. Okay, So the number would be so big that we wouldn't have room to fit it up there is my point. This is impossible for any man to fulfill. And most of what is taking place, Jesus has no control over. In other words, this is something that is being done to him. That's what I love uh, to ponder when I think about the fact that he had to fulfill all, all prophecy in the Old Testament, not just the 36 here. You try and do the odds on that. I mean, it's literally, we have zeros, numbers dancing through the whole room. It's so thick, it's like a fog bank. The odds are impossible is the best way to say it. No man could ever fulfill that. The Jews said there have to be two messiahs because no messiah could fill, fulfill both. 
even if he was incredible and it was impossible. One man does it all. Satan enters into Judas. Can't you just see Satan in his conniving? He's like, ha-ha. And so he gets Judas to betray the Son of God. For how much? 30 pieces of silver. And God's like, gotcha. The whole thing is turned on the enemy. His very enemies are the ones that prove him to be the one that matches all righteousness, fulfills all scripture. Who is this? He's God. Come to this earth to save us. The amazing testimony of seeing the Christ long after the Christ has come. This is where we are. 2,000 years roughly from the time of these occurrences, we have a testimony too. Do you see it? Isaiah saw something. Do you see it? So my greatest heroes of the faith used that phraseology. I saw the cross. That's what they would say. It just sort of sounds strange because I remember reading it going, what do they mean by that? And the day I saw the cross, I was changed. What do you mean you saw the cross? It's the difference between knowing something historically and knowing it. I saw it. I recognized that he did come and he did do this for me. When you see it, it changes you. And then they say, and I saw the empty tomb. What did you, you see? I saw it. What do you mean you, like, you visited it and saw it? Did you like body transport? Was it like a time machine? How did you see it? I saw it with the eyes of faith. I saw the cross. I saw the marred Messiah, the one who became sin for me. And I saw my sin upon him. And I recognized that I am forgiven. I am free. No longer am I under the just condemnation that weighs down upon me because of the law. But in Christ, I have been saved. I've seen it. I've seen the empty tomb. This was truly, in fact, the Son of God, risen from the dead. Death cannot keep him in the grave. He has conquered it. And now, because of faith, I am in him, and I have triumphed over that same grave, and I do not fear death. I have seen the glorified Christ. I have seen his seated position. The very one who humbled himself was born as a little baby laid in a feeding trough. That very one who carried the iniquity of the world is actually exalted to the highest place and all things are under his feet. And I am in him. I have seen it. I have seen the the fact that he's coming again. I know he will come in the clouds. He will come for us. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. You can say, how? What are you seeing, Eric? Because I'm not seeing it. This is how Christianity works. If you're not seeing it, you want to crave the sight. Go after it. Grab a hold of God until you start to see it. Because this is fact. It's not just historical fact. This is the very real reverberations. This is the purchase of God Almighty on our behalf. And it's just as valid and as efficacious today as it was when it first happened. And it's faith that gains access to it. When we see it, it changes us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gave us 
his beauty. He, the most beautiful, the most lovely, the chiefest among 10,000, the Rose of Sharon. I mean, what words would we use to describe it? I don't know. I mean, we just fail. How do you describe divine handsomeness? Perfect perfection. That's what he has. And what did he do? He sets it around us. He is willing to become uglified that we could be adorned. You know what the antonym of being uglified would be? Adorned. Isn't that interesting? It's the concept marred. The antonym of that marring or that disfigurement would be the taking off of something. It's the taking off of beauty. So the opposite is to adorn. He was willing to allow his beauty to be removed so that it could adorn us. Back in Ezekiel 16, God has given us this picture. It's a, it's a very interesting picture that when you understand the new covenant relationship of bridegroom and bride, you begin to see Christ and his church in the workings of what we see here. God's speaking to Jerusalem. And he speaks to Jerusalem as if Jerusalem's a woman and Jerusalem is meant to be beautiful but is downright ugly. Jerusalem has serious issues that can only be solved by God Almighty. And so it goes through this whole process of describing the, the birth of Jerusalem, the, the true ugliness, the, the despairing uh, of this, uh, this place. Now you have to realize in, in the book of Revelation, a new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It's like adorned. Isn't that an interesting statement? Adorned is a bride for a bridegroom. Something is going to be adorned. Jerusalem is going to be adorned. But we understand that Jerusalem is those that believe. It's not just the Jews of old. It's those that believe in the Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles. This is God speaking. You could say this is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament to Jerusalem, to his beloved. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Well, that about says it. He was uglified so that he could take all of that grace, all of that life that he has, and he could make us beautiful. We, left to our own devices, would not do that for someone else. Praise God that he is not like us. That's what holy is. He is not like us, praise God. He is not like us, praise God. He is not like us, praise God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If he was like us, we're sunk. But he came to this earth and took the penalty for our unlikeness of him, our ugliness, our rebellion, 
And he bore the infamy, the shame, the spitting, the ripping out of the beard, the indignities of indignities, to hang naked on a cross before a mocking crowd. He did that for us so that he could make us like himself, so that he could share all that he is with us. Jesus. As Christians, our enemies can strip us of everything. Our Bibles, our church fellowship, our Christian radio, our Christian books, our comforts and earthly securities. They could freeze our financial accounts and plunder our every earthly possession. They could take us from our family, stick us in a dank black prison chamber, and even remove every singular earthly pleasure from our life. But there is one thing they cannot touch. They cannot take and they cannot obstruct. And that one thing is our everything. His name is Jesus. This is eternal, guys. It's not situational. It's not based on our bank account, our job. It's not based on if people like us. It's based on a work that would happen on this earth 2,000 years ago. He has done it. He has finished that work. And now he has secured us in himself. We have it. And the world cannot take it away. And the devil cannot pry it away from us. We have Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, I want you to be inspired to go out of your way to say, I must have Jesus. I've often said that I am the most happy man on planet Earth. It's a very debatable thing, and I know some of you have debated and said you're happier than me. But the point is, it's not because of easy living. It's because of something steady in my soul that never changes. His name is Jesus. Isaiah 53, I've seen it. And I hope tomorrow I see it even more clearly. My desire is that each of us sees it. It's not just the vision of Isaiah. It's the vision of, and you fill in your name, that you have seen it, that you have seen the work of redemption. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.